Thank you, Andrew, for the introduction. Thank you, Naomi, for the invitation to be here uh, today. Um, I was asked uh, to talk a little bit about my observation of livable cities, and I take that literally to Melbourne and a little bit uh, in relationship to Amsterdam, my own home, and then to present a case study where we as architects can take the initiative for urban regeneration uh, and that I take that back to our hometown of the office, uh, Rotterdam. Um, so OMA, uh, from the start, uh, started as an architecture office, but mainly as a research-based uh, practice that only looks at process, process as design or design as process, uh, which gives us the possibility uh, to go beyond the normal realm of an architect or an urban planner and gives us the possibility to critique, uh, to take initiative, and to go beyond uh, the normal scope we are asked to look at. Um, we do that research and that analysis all around the world, uh, which gives us an enormous base of data, but also gives us an enormous feed of possibilities, uh, which we can apply uh, worldwide in different situations or reinvent uh, where we want. I'm not going to show you my CV, but I'm just going to say with this uh, that I'm Dutch, uh, which means uh, I can be blunt also during presentations like this, and I excuse myself if I hurt anybody with what I'm going to say. Um, Australia is a relatively new market for us, uh, but a very interesting one. Um, of course, Naomi gave us the commission for the M Pavilion this year, which we're extremely proud of which was launched a few uh, weeks ago, and yesterday in a stakeholder event was presented more in detail. I will not speak about that. Uh, you can dream of it uh, in my background. I'm also not gonna talk about our experience in WA, which we do together with Hassel, uh, the WA Museum. Very interesting project. But from that project, we of course learn a lot about the context here, uh, which maybe makes me frame this talk. Melbourne, uh, an image as we probably all know it. Kind of a city uh, in a beautiful location with an enormous amount of green, uh, which is ranked uh, the livable city in the world, I think, already for a long time. I will get back to that soon. If you ask people around the world about Melbourne, the most important thing they immediately say is that there are so many parks, there are so much green, and there's so much open space. If you then look in fact, that is also the case. It's one of the cities in the world where open space or parks uh, is abundant and kind of most present. Nothing new to you, but for us, of course, interesting to look at. Does that public space actually also perform any duty within the city might then be the question. And of course, green helps the environment, but it also helps the social cohesion, and how does that relate to urban planning and or development of a city? It's just a question that I drop on the talk and maybe come back to it later. It also means that there would be abundant space for participation, but the question is, do people actually participate? And if they participate, how do they participate? Dan already touched upon it, 
what are the opportunities presented to inhabitants of a city to actually participate in its development. Now back to the livable cities. Melbourne, already six years, ranks number one. Of course, an enormous achievement. Congratulations. But what is it actually based on? Because that is something we need to question ourselves. It's an enormous set of criteria that I will not present to you here, because then I keep on going. But you can summarize it by this slide. And the main criteria that weigh furthest and heaviest are infrastructure and safety. So livability of a city is determined by factors that are measurable. But the question is, is livability actually measurable in data and can it be classified all around the world in the same way? Interesting enough, there is no criteria related to urban design and or architecture. It just doesn't count. Is that something that is really true? There's also no economic performance related to it. Of course, Australia and Melbourne are performing well already years in the economic GDP. But the GDP of the city itself, how do you classify that? And does that not contribute to livability? If you look at lists of the GDP of the city of Melbourne, I'm sorry to inform you, but you're not in the top 200. So how do you make this type of listing future-proof? What is actually counting? It's not about safety, in my opinion. Also not about sanitation and all these kinds of things. No, it's about cultural diversity and it's about social dynamism. How do you work together? How do you participate? It is also kind of very important to state that kind of it's, a city can only stay livable when it is welcoming, when it kind of invites new people, when it invites new coalitions and collaborations, which is very often forgotten or even seen as a threat. Um, here in the politics in Australia, that's a lively debate, for example. Luckily, there are also lists that consider a little bit more than what the economist does. For example, if you look at Monaco, what they do, then business and architecture become part of the equation, and of course, that means a change. Melbourne simply drops along that list based on that. But again, this is just a set of data. Is this then the set of data you should use, or is it again irrelevant in comparison to other cities? What you can say, of course, about the livability, you have enormous challenges here in Australia with the climate and the climate change. How do you operate with that? This is obvious and can simply be measured, seen, and you can try to deal with it. But there are also other changes on its way. For example, our infrastructural changes and the way we move. Now we want privacy, we want speed, we want to go where we want to go. But I think in the future, that is not what we want anymore. We simply want surface. We want to be provided with the idea that we can go from A to B, and we don't want to do it ourselves anymore. A huge change for our city and for its infrastructure. Because the reality of that first image I showed of Melbourne 
is that actually the reality of this city? Or is this maybe the reality, namely a very small, dense heart, but then an enormous sprawl that can spread and spread and spread? And how livable or how longevity does that have? Australian cities are some, uh, have some of the lowest densities in the world. Of course, you have an abundant land uh, which you can use. But it is also completely car dependent because of that, and that's a big risk in my point of view. If you simply look at the data, car ownership in this city is amongst the highest in the world. Uh, not talking about owning two cars or even more. The road network is very, very detailed and very, very abundant everywhere where you go. And luckily, the understanding of public transport and its importance comes to mind. See what the metro news currently is in the city. And hopefully, your public infrastructure can kind of grow and change. But is public infrastructure actually the way to go? Or is it maybe kind of still a personal thing, but then not, not through a motorized vehicle anymore? Then already said something about bicycles. They will change their speed, for example. They will go much faster in the future. If there is infrastructure that can accommodate that, you can use it, and it, of course, gets a great change. I can compare that to my own city, Amsterdam. It's not comparable because it's just a city of 600,000 people. It's small, tiny, it has a history, but that's about it. But if you look at it, in the 60s, people already started talking about getting rid of the car in that city, which led to a road network that only goes to certain parts of the city. In many parts, you cannot go by car, or when you go, in the words of Naomi, you are very scared of all these bicycles around you um, because you cannot drive more than a 10K because else you will overrun one. It also created a map of public transport that is so fine-grained that you can get anywhere, everywhere, within 15 minutes uh, just on one ticket. And then, of course, this. We as Dutchies love our bikes, and it goes very far. Uh, because if you look at the inhabitants, uh, we have more bikes than inhabitants. Uh, and we have about uh, 800 kilometers in the city of bicycle paths, separated from car traffic uh, so that you can go. And this is then, look at the picture of the road network versus the bicycle network uh, in the city. If you compare these two cities, it may be very interesting to see how people move and how people go around. In the future, that mobility will change even further, and that, of course, gives an enormous impact on its infrastructure. How can that impact be regulated? That, of course, goes through public policy. And there we have a problem, a problem worldwide Public policy is only there at the moment to be re-elected. It's very ad hoc, it's very short-sighted. Where in the past, like Mimi showed, we made plans that were for 50, 60 years ahead. Government now very often make policies for four to maximum 10 years ahead uh, because 
we cannot be too visionary because maybe the next government takes over and they want a new policy. Is that actually how you can run a city is maybe a relative question. Another thing that is related to public policy is that we are now also scared of the market. Since the economic crisis, since everybody wanted to make money and dumped us into something that is not good or not seen as not good, we also don't trust that market anymore. So there's a huge gap between who is taking care of our cities. It's not the government, at least not long term, and it cannot be the market because they cannot be trusted. That's a huge gap, and we as architects, urban planners, uh, should be a party that jumps in that gap. Because we need to show that our pro profession is visionary and can bring something to the market. And that brings me to the project that I want to present as a case study, or was asked to present as a case study, Feyenoord City. It's a sports city, uh, which is close to my heart, because I played soccer before I became an architect. Uh, and, and therefore, it was for me an, an interesting case study. Rotterdam, our hometown where our headquarters is, already tries to get a new stadium for 20 years. All the attempts failed. There were more than six or seven designs, and they were all object-based. They were all initiated by the government or by a market party, never by the owner of the stadium itself. So after the last attempt, we went to Feyenoord and said, you need to do it yourself but you should not make a stadium. You should make part of the city and tell the government that you as a soccer club, with your, the citizens that are your supporters, can regenerate the city and we will help you. Of course, that's not really the interest of a soccer club. The interest is simply becoming the champion like this year. Um, yeah, it's very simple. <laughs> um, but they said, it is for us important to be able to stay the champion and be it in the long run to, of course, engage with our inhabitants, with the city, and get that new stadium to earn our money. So there we went off. Um, we studied the area around the new stadium and created a vision uh, for a sports city in Northern Europe. I know here in Australia it's a bit more common that look at Melbourne, that there is an area of a city completely devoted to sports. In Europe, that is very uncommon. Uh, but Rotterdam has the possibility, because it's actually a city that has quarters that are related to specific use. Sports wasn't part of that, uh, so we sold it to the government. We're going to do this for the first time in Northern Europe. The first slide we presented to the government was sports, lifestyle, and healthy living. Of course, things that are very important for society, that become more and more important in daily life. We all track everything. I track my steps, uh, my heart rate, everything. Uh, so we, we are conscious of what we actually do and during a day. Another interesting given to this project was that Rotterdam actually was always on one shore of the river, and the south part, that was for the people working in the boats or on the boats, and uh, not for anything else. There was not even a bridge for a very long time. Only in 1992, there was the decision to connect the two parts of the city and say Rotterdam South is actually part of Rotterdam. Um, we could bank on this recent step because, of course, that means the area of Rotterdam South is very underdeveloped. 
Um, but the good thing about it is it has the highest cultural density worldwide. There are 162 nationalities that are living there uh, in one community uh, of about 300,000 people. Of course, that gives all kinds of social issues uh, that are questionable, um, but that you should accommodate. The biggest problem there is, is that it is housing built on, let's say, 1920s, 1930s models in the Netherlands for a family with three children uh, and kind of nobody else in the house, very small. Um, of course, these nationalities don't live like that, uh, so how do you work with that? On top of that, Rotterdam brings 60,000 new inhabitants uh, over the coming 20 years, uh, which is uh, a huge growth for us uh, uh, in, in a country that is one-fifth of your whole state here. Um, but it's 17 million people uh, that are growing rapidly, about 1.2 million refugees coming to the, uh, to the country over the European crisis. That, of course, brings an enormous influx and an enormous question. So we presented, let's extend this reach to south uh, with this new city and uh, let's bring housing into the area where now the soccer stadium already is. Let's transform a part of the city that is only related to peak, namely a stadium is only used 32 times a year, the rest of the time it's empty, it's a lot of surrounding uh, elements that are not used, to a part of the city that is 24-7 vibrant and that can really bring a new economy. Uh, and that new economy is, of course, also very different than the traditional economy. You had private parties and public parties. You had private buildings and public buildings. You had private functionalities and public functionalities. It is not like that anymore. The sharing economy, of course, breaks these vows. The private parties become uh, important in public policy and in public uh, cultural debate, uh, and vice versa. This brought us to a proposition uh, of about 400,000 square meters, 350 plus 70,000 square meters of space to the city um, around the new stadium. Uh, for Melbourne, this might not be very big, but this is the second largest development in the Netherlands. Uh, after the Zuidas uh, that is competing to get everybody after Brexit uh, into Europe. Um, initiated by a soccer club and an architectural office. Which, of course, when we went to the government, uh, immediately got like, is that your responsibility? Can you actually do that? And we said to them, give us a year. We make a plan for you financed by Feyenoord, and when you like it, you say yes. When you don't like it, you say no, and then kind of we go on in the series of not succeeded uh, projects. Uh, they were generous. They gave us a piece of land. Um, Feyenoord could buy that piece of land from them uh, for very little money uh, and to start working with that. Uh, so that's what we did. Uh, of course, the transaction wasn't done because they said you can buy it, but only when we approve it. And we would like to control it. Uh, so the people of the government wanted to look over our shoulders and actually sat in our office for a year long, kind of working with our architectural team. A collaboration that maybe was not intended, uh, but that worked out well. 
because the knowledge that is in the office isn't in government anymore. There is no funding, no money to have that knowledge or to maintain that knowledge. Government service is not a career anymore, while previous it was a career of maybe 60 years. So these people looked over our shoulders and were very skeptical, of course, in the beginning. But they became part of the project. They became part the owner of the project while they were not paying for it, while they didn't have to take pol political responsibility for it. So I now will quickly browse through the plan itself and its physical components, and then I will come back uh, to a few other layers. Of course, it has the stadium, uh, one of the largest soccer stadiums in Western Europe, 63,000 seats. That's bigger than Manchester City and Manchester United, to give you an idea. Um, it's built up out of three rings uh, and a roof, uh, important these days in regulations. And what we did is we built part below the water level. Uh, in the Netherlands, kind of there, the threat of rising water here uh, with one meter, we're already six meters below sea level, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we built even deeper uh, so that it looks a bit smaller. Three rings. And completely, uh, the idea is completely based on the current soccer stadium, uh, which was the first oval stadium built in the 1920s in Europe, and therefore a national monument, uh, which comes, I come back to later. Also a stadium that is uh, extremely scary to play in, and I experienced it. Uh, because you have no opening whatsoever. There's no break. There are only shouting people. So we simply copied the model of the past uh, and used it again. Um, we put the people even closer to the soccer pitch uh, than they were at that point, which was important for the supporters to win over that enormous crowd of 200,000 uh, people that support this soccer club to actually go to a new stadium, which they didn't want. We had about 60 sessions with them, kind of the normal supporters and the very, let's say, hardcore supporters. Um, we created a multifunctional stadium, and this is interesting because the city also wanted to get rid of some entertainment facilities in the city center to be able to make houses in the city center again. And therefore, this stadium in the upper ring also has nightclubs, restaurants overlooking uh, the river. Uh, so that some of the bigger crowds kind of move out of the city center to here. We also adopted a new model of safety. It's a stadium that has no boundaries anymore. There are no fences. Uh, only when there's a risk situation, there are three retractable fences that kind of close off the whole area, which gives us an enormous space around it that we can use as urban space public space. Urban sports are the fastest growing sports in the world, and they will go Olympic in Tokyo, which is a kind of an interesting given. We were able to create a huge plaza and huge area for this urban sports within the city. Everything is car free, and I will get back to that soon. It is kind of on the river, kind of visible from the city, and becoming part of the skyline of that city. Around it, uh, we use kind of the idea of extending this part of south towards the water uh, and the industrial areas and create a new boardwalk uh, all along the river 
through the project, which of course from an urban perspective and a city perspective opened up the river to the city uh, while it was mainly industrial before. Uh, that created possibilities for housing and created possibilities for new retail shapes and it also made the stadium like at a knuckle point uh, between the city and its new areas. Um, I will get back to the old stadium soon, but between that there's a connector. Um, the High Line is referenced very often, but this is a public space, again car-free, that connects these two areas. Uh, enormous crowds, of course, need to move. It connects to the station, um, and it has a familiar size for Rotterdam already. It's more or less a three-dimensional device in which uh, you find currently car parks. Uh, but Rotterdam has the ambition to bring back car usage significantly, and therefore we had to plan it in such a way uh, that it can be completely turned over over time. Dan already showed an example in Amsterdam. Every building that wants a building permit in the Netherlands now needs to adhere to the current parking laws, but also needs to have a strategy to be car-free in 2025. So that means you have to have a phasing strategy uh, that is more or less a reversed phasing strategy. That also means you look to 10 kilometer radius and not like 600 meter radius for a stadium. It means a model shift. Only a few people can come by car in the future. And it means that structures that you build now, purposely built for that, will change and regenerate over time. Here you see that that strip between these two, the 600 meters, is completely car-free again, and everything is below uh, the surface. It has all kinds of facilities related to uh, new urban models. For example, uh, shopping in a city center doesn't work anymore. Shopping on the internet doesn't work. But the new type of shopping is high outlets with logistical centers. You buy something and it is shipped to your home. Uh, these type of things, these type of models are integrated here. It also has a huge amount of public space uh, that can be programmed in many ways uh, and delivers, of course, a lot of opportunities to the city. We made several proposals for the city, so we can change its grain based on the success of it, based on the time it is uh, absorbed uh, within the city, uh, and that means there's a huge flexibility. And that means it creates a world uh, that is completely uh, visible uh, for the pedestrian and the cyclists, uh, but it is a new part of the city. The stadium itself, as I already said, it's a national monument, so we cannot touch it. Heritage is, of course, a very important question in the livability of a city. How do you deal with your history? How do you deal with local culture? And in this case, we decided to give it a complete new identity, a complete new future. Don't conceal it, but use it uh, towards the future. In other words, it's completely going to be reprogrammed. Uh, you can live in the stadium, uh, you can kind of uh, uh, recreate in the stadium, and you can uh, go there uh, for healthy living. There will be a huge health service. So in the heritage site, uh, there will be the Museum of Fine Art, uh, there will be a sports experience, which is kind of a digital way of getting acquainted with sports. So you can run here against Usain Bolt 100 meters, so you can see how fast he really is. 
uh, or do things like that. Um, there is, of course, some leisure facilities, F&B, and then there are a lot of sport facilities and health facilities. And then in the top tiers, uh, we integrated houses over two layers uh, so that people can live in there. Uh, units from 50 to 150 square meters, uh, so hugely flexible, and simply the market can ask, uh, okay, I would like to buy a house for six people or eight or nine. Very rough indication. And here you see then the transformation of that stadium in time or from another angle. Public space and green in the city is, of course, important. We just already discussed it here in Melbourne. Uh, we created a loop. Of course, we used the soccer pitches, but also a new park around the old stadium in which housing units will be created, not by the market, not for investment, but simply to adopt the people of South, and they can live in a flexible community. Uh, again, you can buy a small unit for two people, or you can buy five units and connect them together, uh, so you live there in a smaller community. All these models have been tested, and they will be uh, not related to investment or investment return, but they will simply be related to density. What does this create? Why the city needed to choose for it? Um, the surface area, of course, stays the same. There's no change. But the usable open space, while we injected 400,000 square meters of program, kind of increased from about 30% to 60%, an enormous public uh, achievement and investment. A nice architectural project or urban project like this won't win the government over, of course, you can imagine. The financial model I cannot present to you, but trust me, it's completely financed. Um, but there was another part that was important, namely the social economic master plan that went with it. We said what is good for Rotterdam is good for Feyenoord and vice versa. If you look at South, the, it has the highest unemployment in the country. Of course, that is something you can work with. It also has the lowest sport participation. That's ironic if you want to make a sport city. That's something you can work with. So we created an ambition with the aldermen of the city to kind of make Feyenoord City move Rotterdam. Uh, we built it simply as a big innovative sports complex, uh, but the main thing is that it creates perspective for the people of South. This is a statement of the mayor, uh, who is a Moroccan uh, origin, uh, and now uh, is the mayor of Rotterdam. Uh, he mainly focuses on finding talent with people that have less opportunities. And of course, sports reaches billions of people and binds them together. It's a language everybody speaks. So we worked on levels of top sports, but we also worked on levels of simply basic and healthy living, and connected all these and found companies that were supporting all these ideas and innovations. And they worked with Feyenoord to create that financial model we just discussed uh, that is closing the whole thing. The essential pieces of the pie were a multi-sports club, the first in the Netherlands, but also kind of looking at education, injecting new forms of education in the urban planning on a private basis, publicly accessible, 
than the public space, as I already discussed it, completely planned for sports and movement, and then an innovation hub for all these companies that are researching data of sports, etc., etc. And then the sports experience. It might sound strange, but people behind computers don't move. Uh, so you need to get them out of their living rooms, back onto the streets, uh, and you can do that through digital means. The realization of this, of course, created an enormous uh, connection within this city part. All the people that were first skeptical started combining their efforts and came with a lot of plans to find and said, oh, we would like to do this in your new plan. We would like to do this. The participation that I talked about before, the social cohesion, and they started supporting the plan. So we stated we built it together, together with the city, but also together with the inhabitants, and we can create jobs. Of course, an important driver in the off economy. These social economic parameters can also start now. One of the things that is very difficult in urban regeneration or urban development is that the return or the perspective is very far ahead. It's not something you can do within two months or in three months. The instant ad hocness isn't there. But of course, you can start with this social economic plan the moment the plan is adopted. And that created the situation that the government actually approved the plan last May. And we're going to do uh, this whole re regeneration of the part of south of Rotterdam. And so you see that even in a city where there is no government, where there is no policy that looks very far ahead, and where there is a market that can't be trusted or that is locked in old dogmas, um, can be unlocked in that realm in between. And that realm in between is where design and innovation and ideas actually operates and operates in the best possible way because you have a lot of freedom because nobody determines actually what is happening in these openings. And we are, of course, very proud that in the end, in our hometown, uh, we were able to kind of get such a big development that was locked for about 20 years, completely on our own initiative, with one private party that plays with balls, um, initiate uh, in, in a city. And therefore, I think it's a nice case study uh, to talk about uh, livability. And thank you, that's what I had to say. <laughs>